Good morning. All right. You guys ready? Good morning. Um, all right. Okay. All righty. First Corinthians chapter 12. Matthew chapter 20. First Samuel chapter 30. And who knows what else? We'll see. Ready? Let's do it. Thank you, Jesus. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you, God, for um, what you're doing in us and in our midst. And thank you, God, just for your great love for us and for your spirit that's with us this morning. Father, we come before you and we really lean, God, on your spirit. We realize, Lord, that we have um, just nothing without you and that we need you, God, for all things. And we pray, Lord, that as we're here this morning, that you would just take over inside of us. God, we, we don't want to be that church where you're standing on the outside knocking. God, we, we don't want to be um, those people that manage to have services where you don't show up. And, uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would save us um, from that, that you would save us, God, from a life um, of religiosity apart from you. And you would save us, God, from a life of thinking that we have things under control and um, that we know uh, what to do and how to do it. And, and just help us, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to focus our attention and our affection on you this morning and be with us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Thank you, Jesus. Well, so much fun to be had. I barely know where to start. You guys can hear me okay? Okay, great. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, why don't we start there today? Um, and uh, I'm going to read this, uh, and, uh, and then we're going to read um, some other things, uh, and, then, uh, and then we're going to come back. Uh, we're going to come back to this. Um, that's just, I, I think that's how we're going to roll. All right. Um, First Corinthians chapter 12, all right. uh, starting in verse 12. Just as the body is one, and then many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Yay, thank you, Jesus. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, I would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, the Lord God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would be the body? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God is appointed to the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and miracles and gifts of healing, helping and ministering in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a more excellent way. All right, you're very familiar probably with this passage of scripture. If you're not, that's good. Um, you know, blank slate and everything like that. Um, I want to talk about unity in the body today and to approach it in a way that's a little bit um, uh, different, maybe. Um, maybe not for everyone. All right. So we're going to come back to what Paul said. Um, I just wanted to... Um, uh, give that to you so that you could have that. But I'm going to come back to what Paul said. I want to start actually first with a few different obstacles to unity. Okay. Um, and um, and here's here's I think one of the problems. We all want to strive for unity. Yay. Um, okay, there wasn't as much excitement as I. Okay, that's hoping for a little bit more excitement. But okay, uh, we all want to strive for unity. Yay. The problem is that um, the. Ingredients to unity, the attributes that actually allow us to be unified, are fairly contrary uh, to um, certain values that we have. There are certain things that you have to let go of um, if you want, if you desire unity. And I'm not talking just about like being self-seeking or being self-glorifying. You know, th those are obvious. Like, duh. If you're any of those things, you're not going to find any unity ever. But um, there, there's actually there's there's some other things that are a little bit tricky too. Matthew chapter 20, you're familiar with this. For the kingdom of heaven is a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers to his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. And going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to him, why do you stand your idle all day? And he said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to him, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And, those, uh, and when those hired hands about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last only worked for an hour. And you have made them equal to those of us who have uh, borne the burden of the day in scorching heat. And he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is um, a very well-known parable, of course. You've studied it in Sunday school. You've known it in your entire life. But, um, but, but this parable, in this parable, Jesus describes um, one of the uh, primary difficulties of having unity in the church. Are you feeling better today? No, I said you were sick. That was sad. We all cried. Um, it describes one of the uh, uh, it describes one of the difficulties of finding unity in the church. Um, which is it? Okay. Traditionally, when I when I first learned this parable in Sunday school, um, the way that it was taught is you know everybody goes to heaven, and we're all the same in heaven. And just because you did a lot for God doesn't mean there's a better heaven for you. We all go to the same heaven. Either the same table, same banquet, same wedding feast, all that stuff. That's true, but that's not what Jesus is talking about in this parable because this parable does not talk about um, the fact that we all go to heaven. The, the parable, in other words, does not talk about us getting something that we don't deserve, something that we've never earned, something that is given to us freely. 
um, by our faith. That, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus here is talking about something different. He's talking about a reward. And he's talking about um, the way that God dispenses reward not appearing fair to men. So it's not talking about you going to heaven. It's talking about the fact that there are times in life where you work harder than other people, but they are rewarded the same as you. And the necessity of accepting that as part of being a part of the kingdom of God. It, like you, you can't participate in the kingdom of God if you don't embrace that. Because what will happen is that the, um, the sense of injustice in you, it's, it's misaligned, it's not really injustice. God is not unjust when he gives you what you deserve, but he gives somebody else more than they deserve, right? It's not unjust. It's just unfair. But, but we love fairness. We love fairness. So the story that I, I like to tell um, uh, about this, which um, is a little embarrassing, but it, it's a story. Okay. So years ago, I went to Chipotle. You all know this story. But it's just like, it, it's just, urgh. like, I, I, you know, so, okay. So just for everybody that doesn't know, years ago, I went to Chipotle, okay? And the guy in front of me was... Um, was, was a Hispanic guy who was a teenager, and um, everybody that worked there was Hispanic that day. And so, and, um, and he uh, um, went in front of me, and, and everything he wanted, they gave him a double portion of. And he'd just be like, oh, I want the chicken. And, and the, the person behind was just like, would you like, would you like an, uh, an extra scoop of chicken? And, and uh, it's on us. And I'd be like, what? Like, double meat costs an extra 250. Like, you know, but they'd be like, it's on us, don't worry. And then they would just give him an extra scoop of chicken. Then they'd get to the guac, you know, which I don't get guac for myself, like, when, when I go to Chipotle. That, that's like, that's, that's, uh, it's probably some brokenness inside of me is probably what it is, honestly. I don't know. It's $2. Like it's not, yeah, I can afford it. But anyways, so they don't get guac because it, to me, it's an irrational luxury. But anyways, so they get to that guy and they're like, you know, and you want guac and it'll be free. And then, and then I'm like sitting here like, and my bowl's like right behind his, you know, and I have like half the food that he does. And so we get up to the register and, and, and the, like they charge him for a normal bowl, even though he's got like the things like bulging, it's like about spilling out. They can't put the lid on. Um, and then mine's like, you know, it's just, and I'm like, and I'm seething and I'm like, oh, this is so, but you see, and it's not unjust because I got, what I was promised. Like, I, I got what I paid for. It's just unfair. And there's a lot of times in life where we grow bitter and offended, not at injustice, but at unfairness. But the problem is that unfairness is a virtue of God's. He describes himself as being unfair. He describes himself as being just, but he describes himself as being unfair. And, and, and it's necessary, actually, that God be unfair. It's just that we, want, we don't actually want God to be fair. We want God to favor us. A, f- a fair God is not the God we want. The, what we want is a God that favors us. We don't want fair God. Nobody wants fair God. If you want a fair God, stop praying. Because God answering your prayers, not fair. That's not fair to anybody else. Why should he help you on your test? Why should he help bless you with grad school? Like, you didn't work as hard. Why should you get an A on that test? Why should he help you remember that thing that you forgot? Like, it's not, you're not asking for fairness. Like, but, but the problem is that when God extends his unfairness favorably to other people, then, do you know what I mean? And, and we have to differentiate between injustice and unfairness. But, the, but an unwillingness to accept unfairness means that you'll never really participate in the kingdom of God. Ta-da, you won't be able to stand it. You get kicked out because you, like, you, you'll grow bitter and offended and then just... Do you know? 
but it's very difficult. It's very difficult because the expectation of fairness is actually built into us, and, and it's, it, especially if we are Americans, which we are. And it's stronger, actually, than our desire for justice. When the, the guys that worked uh, uh, nine hours that day and got to the front of the line, they expected, they, they expected that they were going to get paid more. Like there's something inside of them where it just nobody told them they were going to get paid more. There's no reason they should have expected to get paid more. They expected to get paid more because th that, the, that, that thing in us that, that, that desires fairness is, is, is like, you know, just only when other people are being treated good. That it's, it's so strong. It's greater than that thing of, do you understand? Like it's irrational actually. And yet it's, it's, it's there. And, but listen, if you um, can't get over this, uh, you can't be a part of God's kingdom. Um, the part, uh, uh, the point of being in the kingdom is that there are certain times uh, where you don't get what you deserve, everybody gets the same thing. Um, and that's true, actually. That's the, it's, it maybe sounds a little bit weird, but that's actually true of all enterprises um, where you are truly a collective, um, in, in this sense, okay. Um, if you have, uh, it's the NBA finals are going on right now, right? Okay, and when um, Miami or Denver wins, um, it's Miami and Denver, right? Okay, okay, when Miami or Denver wins, thank you, um, thank you. Uh, when Miami or Denver wins, I, I, that was just a test to see who idolizes sports. I'm just kidding, <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. See, that's why you never answer any questions in church. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just like, just kidding. Just kidding. Are the Super Bowls on this weekend? Oh, who knew? Uh, uh, what is the Super Bowl exactly? Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, but, but, um, but when one of the teams wins, uh, everybody's going to get a ring, but not everybody will have made an equal contribution. Right? All sports teams have superstars. And the superstars play 48 minutes a game. It's 48 minutes, right? 48 minutes a game. And uh, last, I think it was 48 minutes last time I watched basketball. Okay, is it 48 minutes a game or 46 minutes a game or whatever it is, and they score, you know, 40% of the points or something like that. And then you have these bench warmers that like, you know, I, I mean, really what they're there for is to stand up and clap when somebody sees a goal because they never take off their hoodie. And yet everybody gets the same ring. And everybody gets the same ring. And, and it's actually important that everybody get the same ring because if you, were, if you did not get the same ring, then you would, not be, you would not be one team, one dream going for the same thing. It's actually very important that, that everybody get the same ring. That's what brings you together. And the people that do more need to embrace this fact. Otherwise, you just shouldn't play team sports. You go play tennis or poker, did you know? Don't play team sports if you can't deal with, with that fact. Because if, because if you don't embrace that fact, you'll never actually have a team. You'll just have a bunch of people competing with each other rather than competing with the enemy. It's, it's necessary that the reward be unfair when you're playing a team sport. It's necessary for unity. It's not like, like well, well, you know, God is just arbitrary. It's not that. It's, it's that there is actually no other way to bring people together in a way where they're truly unified, except to just allow people that do less the, the same reward. It's, it's the only way to create cohesion. And that may seem uh, illogical or rational. Think about it later. All right? If you don't do that, the team spends more time competing with each other than they do competing with 
the with the with the enemy. And so, but but the um, uh, th- this grinds against us, and we don't like it. And because we don't like it, it's hard. It's hard to uh, it's it's hard to um, accept uh, uh, what it means to be a part of the body. All right, First Samuel chapter thirty. First Samuel chapter thirty describes a uh, what appears to be a similar phenomenon. It's actually a little bit different, which. Um, we're going to see here, uh, and uh, it's a f- somewhat long story, um, but uh, we um, love long stories. Um, now, when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites made a raid against Nagib and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. And David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in self, each for his sons and daughters. And this next sentence is highlighted in my Bible and it should be in yours. But David strengthened himself, and the Lord is God. Um, there's many times in life when you suffer great loss, and you, you got to learn how to do this, and you have to learn how to do this before you go through that season where you suffer great loss. You have to learn how to strengthen yourself, not be strengthened by others, but you have to learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. It's good for you to have brothers and sisters, good for you to have moms and dads, good for you to have mentors and pastors and counselors and everybody else. But you, like, you need to independently understand how to strengthen yourself, how to pick yourself up in the Lord your God. This is incredible because David's men are very faithful men, very loyal men, as it turns out. However, there's a moment in time where they suffer such a devastating loss. They suffer such a devastating loss under David's leadership that they turn on him. And there's like, should we stone David? It's David's fault. Let's stone him. And, you know, and, and, and then David, despite the fact that his men are generally loyal to him, found himself in a position where he was all alone and in that place he had nobody other than God himself. And if he had not taught himself how to do this in years past, he'd just be like, well, forget it. I might as well just commit suicide. It, it's, you can't. You have, to, you have to go through enough loneliness in life and misunderstanding in life that you learn how to do this. Do you know? And I feel sometimes, actually, that there are certain um, uh, of us and, and of our brothers and sisters that like, have um, weaknesses and struggles that just go on for long periods of time, and they don't go away with prayer, and they don't necessarily go with fasting. And, and we wonder, like, well, why doesn't God just deliver us in a moment? Of course, he has the ability to deliver us from anything, from lust, from greed, from impatience, from uh, suicidal thoughts, from depression, from anxiety, from everything. But, but the process of working yourself out of that you actually learn how to strengthen yourself in God if you will walk through the process with him. If you just walk through the process, like just you know, lying on your bed and being like, oh, I'm so depressed, I'm so depressed, then you won't. Then you won't. But, but if you walk through the process with God, what you learn is there's, there's this, this you know, spiritual muscle, I guess you'd call it. There's this ability in you to strengthen yourself in God. And it's very important that you learn that. And because it's so important that you learn that, God allows us to walk through um, emotional difficulty or difficulty in life or struggles or tensions or conflicts and without resolving them for us immediately because it's important that you learn how to do this. It's important that you learn how to uh, go to God and find strength in that place of going to God. Don't just amen it, do it. 
when you have a hard day at work, don't like go run to your husband or your wife and be like, oh, you know how I'm going to do work. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. When something goes against you in life, don't like run to your best friend and, or, and be like, let's go get a baby and talk about what a hard day I had today. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Do you know? And don't go running to your nearest like boba tea shop or your nearest box of chocolates. Like strengthen yourself in the Lord. And it's not, we're not, it's not therapy or, or therapeutics that will help us in times of need. We need to learn how to strengthen ourselves and God. And these things will happen to you in life. Are there people that will help you and strengthen you? Of course there are. It's just that it's not nearly as important as the ability to strengthen yourself, right? Okay, so, all right, here we go. So David strengthened himself in the Lord, right? And he said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Abiathar is such a wonderful name. <clears throat> Abiathar is such a wonderful name. All right. The son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And so Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, and those who were left behind, and those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, and 200 stayed behind, for, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. And they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake and figs and two clusters of raisins. And he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to a Malachite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. And we made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb. And we burned Ziglag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band, and he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines, from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Interesting. I never thought of camels as being fast animals. Interesting. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoiled or anything that had been taken. David brought all back. And David also captured all the flock and the herds, and people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left behind at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord had given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. He made it a great statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. You um, may know that song, you know, we went down to the enemy's camp and I took, but would you not, guys not grow up in Sunday school. That was like one of my favorite Sunday school songs. And that comes out of this, um, out of this story actually. Um, so David has 600 men, um, and, uh, and 400 of them go off to war with him and, and retrieve the spoil, and 200 of them stay behind because the Bible says, because what? They were too weak to go. Yeah? 
And when they came back, the stronger ones, of the, but the Bible describes them as the worthless fellows among the stronger ones. See, being stronger doesn't make you better. Okay, I'm just gonna go ahead and, being stronger doesn't make you, doesn't make you any better. And so of the, uh, among the 400, there were stronger ones that were worthless, and they said, well, we're not gonna give the guys that left behind any of the spoil, except that they can take their wives and their kids. We don't want them. But we're not going to give them any of the spoil that we got from the enemy. And, and David said, nah, we're not going to do that. And the way that he explains it is actually really interesting. How does David explain it? He explains it in this way, because it's not your strength that won the battle. It's the blessing of the Lord. And because it's not your strength that won the battle, you don't have the right to deprive people that didn't have your strength from the reward that God gave us. Does that make any sense? You either trust in God or you trust in your own strength. You can't have it both ways. It, when you find success in this life, you either say, this is because of God, or you say, this is because of me. But, but like, you have to pick and choose. You, you cannot, on the one hand, say we are people of faith, and we trust in the Lord our God, and we lean on him, and then you expect God to bring you supernatural victory, supernatural provision. But then when the provision comes, you say, I actually it was because I'm smart and I'm good and I'm favored. Like, you can't do that. That's logically inconsistent, and yet that's what we do all the time. When we are hopeless and there's no open doors and we need God, we're like, oh God, please. You know, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we call upon the name of the Lord. And then when we get our breakthrough, we're like, well, I'm just the best. Like in the industry, there's none like me. 600 resumes we look through, none was as pretty as mine. You know, I'm just a great interviewer. We may not say it in our hearts. We're like, man, I crushed that interview. I answered every question out correctly. <laughs> and and like, you gotta pick and choose. Like you, you just, you can't be, on both sides of the fence. Either you're leaning on God or you're leaning on yourself. And if you're leaning on yourself, then good luck with life. But if you're leaning on yourself, then your money belongs to you and your favor belongs to you and your success belongs to you and your house belongs to you. You don't need to share it. It's yours. But if you're going to lean on God, then when God gives you favor, like you can't say this is mine because it's not. Because the victory belongs to God. The worst thing that you can do is change your mind after you get the victory. That's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do is be like these guys. They felt so hopeless, so down. They're like, let's just stone David. We'll give up. We lost everything. And then David goes and seeks the priest. And the priest says, no, nah, God's going to give you victory. Go and run after them. You're going you're gonna to find them. Don't worry about that. And so they went. Oh, oh, like, you know, and they come back. And it's, it's clearly the Lord's victory. They clearly did not have the strength in themselves to get the victory. But yet when the victory was given, suddenly they believed that it was them. And suddenly they believed that those who God had not given strength to were unworthy to share in the victory that they got. But the strength came from God. You sought him. You confessed that you were weak. You confessed that you had no hope. You confessed that you had no answers. You confessed that you had no way. So why is it that now that God has given you what you asked, now it's all of a sudden it's you? Nonsensical. And yet we do this all the time. We do this all the time. We, we, when we are favored, when God's gifted us, when he's given us a special gift, a special calling, a special ability above our brothers, all of a sudden we believe that it's us and we believe that we shouldn't share, we shouldn't, and then we're just like, we're better. And, and, and do you see how this messes with unity? You can't believe that you're better just because God gives you different gifts. That's not how it works. I mean, you, you can, but like, first of all, it's not good. And secondly, of all, you'll never have unity in God. Because your wife remembers when you were a loser. Do you know? 
And now that you're loving and kind and spiritually mature and wise, <laughs> she, she remembers that that's not you. That was God <laughs> that did that in your life. And so when you, you know, like stand in front of whatever, when you write a book that sells a million copies, and you're like, oh, I'm so awesome. I mean, just, that's why everybody should get married young. It's just like, just let your wife, the wife of your youth remind you of what an idiot you were when you first got together. Like, just, it's good for you, for someone to know you before God raises you up to remind you it ain't you. It's just the blessing of the Lord upon your life. It ain't you, friends. As a blessing of the Lord upon your life. And because of the blessing of the Lord upon your life, when it comes time to share that blessing, when it comes time to welcome others who did not receive the same grace that you got, the same favor that you got, the same gifts that you got, the same miracles that you got, the same prophetic anointing that you got, the same ability to communicate that you got, the same charisma, the same whatever, it should flow naturally out of you because you should know. It should be intuitive to you that it was never you. Not you from the beginning. It's not you at the end. It was never you. You know, but when we think that it's us, we don't want to share. And when you don't want to share, you can't have any unity. All right, let's go back to First Corinthians chapter twelve. Paul talks about a few different um, uh, further stumbling blocks to unity, which we're going to just go through here. All right. For just as the body is one and as many members, all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The first obstacle that Paul deals with, so you saw the other obstacles, right? The inability to tolerate unfairness, the falsely ascribing victory and success to yourself. Um, Paul now is gonna run through a few more, okay? All right, the first one that Paul goes through is this. He says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand and do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The first problem here that Paul deals with is what? Insecurity. Insecurity. Paul says that there are going to be some that say, I don't see, so I can't be a part of the body. I don't hear, so I'm not a part of the body. I, I, I'm not a, I, I don't have any, I'm, I'm in a prophetic church, but I don't have a prophetic gift. I must not belong here. I'm in a church that, you know, uh, serves the homeless, but I don't have any heart for, uh, uh, for that community, so I must not belong. Like, the, 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 there's certain, um, uh, uh, we've created all sorts of, I'm, I never heard phrases like imposter syndrome and things of that nature, and yet it's like, but we've created all sorts of different ways to express the fact that we simply are not uh, um, solid uh, in who God has created us to be. Um, and... Uh, that's not God talking. That's human reasoning and that's foolishness. Um, for you to say, because I am not gifted, uh, I should not be part of the body. Um, because uh, I am not um, thin, because I am not tall, because I'm not athletic, because I'm not um, straight. Um, because I am not uh, uh, um, 
whatever. Like, you know, like I should not be part of body. And, and Paul says, the fact that you don't think you're part of body does not make you any less a part of the body. It says your own insecurity does not compromise what God has made you to be. But it may compromise the relationships and the way that you, it, like it may make it dysfunctional. It doesn't make you not a part of body, but it may make, you know, your relationship with the rest of the body dysfunctional. And so you have to really deal with that. You have to deal with the fact that um, the nature of being one body with many parts means that we are not all going to be the same. Uh, do, does that make any sense? And, and gifts that like, are overvalued or valued incorrectly, like, and you don't have that gift, you may feel like, well, you know, I just don't belong to the body. But, like, but everybody needs a lot of different gifts. As Paul's going to say at the end here, you're all apostles, you're all prophets, you're all teachers, all evangelized, you all like, do these different things, you all, yeah, can all do administration, can all help, can all you know, heal, can all, like, no, we, we cannot all. And that's the entire point. Even if you are part of a, a church that you know, is like, you know, like a house of prayer type of thing and you don't like to intercede, that doesn't mean that there's not a place there for you. And even if you're part of a church that, you know, is like, you know, that just does a lot of music and you, you can't hold a tune, or, you know, except in your shower, like, that doesn't mean that you don't belong there. Like, do you know? Um, it's just how it is. So in a body, there will be some people that make a lot of money, some people that make a few. There, in a body, there will be some people that are great communicators, some people that can't communicate to save their lives. And there will be some people that can evangelize, just, it's just, they're just gifted, that just are able to engage with people and talk to them. They have an interest in doing it. And there are some of us that, honestly, we prefer to stay home. It's not that we don't like unbelievers. We just don't, we just like to stay home. Not me. I hope. But, it, and, but the problem is that we have these insecurities, right? Because every time that in church you're doing something where other people are like, oh, I'm so excited about that, that's my gift. And that's like not your gift. We feel like, oh, maybe I don't belong. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe nobody likes me. Maybe I'm just unseen. Maybe I'm unheard. Maybe, no, actually, you're still a part of the body. And the fact that like, you don't perceive yourself that way, the fact that you've um, come to think that like, the body are all eyes, we're not. Like, it doesn't change the fact that you are, but, but you may decide to leave or you may decide to be dysfunctional because, because you perceive yourself that way. Um, so... Insecurity. Next. 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? The next is the desire to conform to other people, to look at what somebody else can do and try to be just like them, except you fail to understand that if you were just like them, who would do what you're supposed to do? Like, if nobody, if, if everybody were, um, were, uh, a math nerd, uh, you know, where would be, you know, people that love art, uh, you know, or like if everybody, that's not a good, because, you know, we can, be, we can do both. Like we really, we could do both. But like, you know, if, if, if everybody, um, I, I, it's, like, I, I don't even know how to like come up with good examples here, but you, you understand the point. Like you cannot look at somebody else's gifts and be like, I gotta have that gift. There are going to be some people that like love to pray and just are just so deep in prayer and they could just like they could just pray, 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 pray. And there's going to be you. You show up to prayer meetings mainly to listen. I'm talking like 90% of people in this church. It's amazing. You get on a prayer call with like 30 people and like two people want to pray and then it's like 10 minutes of silence. Okay, all right. Some of you have to speak up more. 
But some of you really, like, you don't, you're not like public intercessors. You know, when you pray, you go into your closet and God rewards you openly, you're fine with that. And there are different gifts. There are some people that pray, like, love to pray openly, there are some people that don't. And listen, if God has called you to do it, don't be insecure. But that's still just the way that it is, right? We're all different. And you can't say, because I don't have this gift, you know, my church is very this, my church is very that, my church is very missional, my church is very mercy-oriented, my church is very whatever. You can't say that just because we don't have this gift that we don't belong to the body, right? Because the, 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 the whole point is that we are a body of of many parts. These two things in combination uh, are like, honestly, I, I know they sound like so basic, but yet they're very difficult for people to grasp. Very, very, very difficult for people to grasp. Um, and because, uh, there are lots of reasons, but one reason is because um, our society tends to move in movements and in waves. And whatever is happens to like peaking right now, that's what everybody thinks is like the it, the thing that like the, the thing that's like most important. And you see this in Christian music, you see this in um, in missions, you see this in prayer, you see this in like all sorts of things. Like something becomes like this 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 grandiose thing, and then everybody wants to be like that. And the problem is that when you be like that, then you take away from actually God has not required or created us all to be like that. And if you don't get on the wave, uh, then you're thought of as being like, well, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you? But you're just, you're, that's not, the, you're not, it, to, to join the hype, you would have to be dishonest about who God has created you to be. I'll give you an example. Um, about 20 years ago, um, uh, have, you, have any of you eaten at Nobu? <laughs> Faith and Micah. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Nobu is a, um, is a, is a fake Japanese restaurant. <laughs> Started in LA. And the, um, the chef at uh, Nobu, uh, who's a, a Japanese name I can't remember, um, invented a dish, um, black cod with miso. And, um, uh, which I don't know if you've tasted, um, because uh, it, it became very popular. Um, and, uh, and so um, he invented actually a few different dishes, black cod with miso, um, tuna with um, crispy rice, um, a, f- a few dishes that became sort of like signature dishes at Nobu. And, uh, and it was very expensive. And, um, and celebrities in Hollywood would go to there to spend, you know, six or $800, you know, per person to eat there. It's kind of that kind of like very expensive place. But, um, and, and this, this black cod with miso is, first of all, delicious. And second of all, um, totally, um, totally new and different and not Japanese. But, um, but it was so successful and it sold so many that, um, that within about five years, pretty much every Japanese restaurant in both LA and New York was serving cod with miso. And in fact, if you go to a Japanese restaurant today, like any, not your neighborhood, you know, not sushi sushi, you know, but like not dragon sushi, you understand, but like, you know, like a, like a, good, like a good Japanese restaurant in the city, um, it's just very unlikely, unless they were like very pure, like, you know, like Tokyo sushi style, you know, guy with bamboo, like, I mean, like, like spends 20 years learning how to, how to steam egg sort of place. Um, it's very likely they would have um, bakkad with, with, with miso. And the reason is, um, is, is because the reason that, that, that this happens is just because it, it's, it's the nature of the world, actually. When you see somebody else doing something that is very, very successful, um, where, I mean, this guy probably made $50 million like selling black cod miso. Like, it's not, you know, it's just, it was a great idea. It's a great dish. But the thing that happens in our society is that when we see somebody being successful like that, the most ordinary thing is to copy them. And, and even if you don't desire to copy, even if you desire to be original, what happens is that you get this idea, unless I copy them, 
I'm, my restaurant will never take off because everybody wants to eat cod with miso. And if I don't offer it on my menu, no one's coming to my restaurant. Does that make any sense? And then so we begin to conform to that image of that thing that would be most helpful. It's for that reason that in just about every generation, there are a few people that, that um, whether they're preachers or whatever it is, they rise up as examples and that everybody soon begins to copy them. Their mannerism, their, their way of uh, dealing with things, their way of answering questions, like their way of ministry. And, and then what the church begins to do is we take the diversity of the church that is supposed to exist and that diversity begins to shrink because everybody wants to be like Piper. Everybody wants to be like, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Um, uh, Lloyd-Jones. Like everybody wants to be like, uh, like Spurgeon. Everybody Everybody wants to be, whoever, whoever, like whoever happens to be the one that's, you know, lifted up. Everybody's like, oh, John Stott, he was a great preacher in England a generation ago. Everybody preached like him. And, and we, like, Spurgeon is this great example because there are a lot of, there's a generation of preachers. He was such a masterful preacher. There's a generation of preachers that grew up not learning how to preach from the Bible, but learning how to preach by taking Spurgeon's sermons, making very minor edits to them, and preaching them. And what happens, well, the problem is that not everybody processes scripture the way that Spurgeon does. I mean, he's totally fine. You can find books of his sermons say, you know, masterful, brilliant, you know, wise, also wonderful man of God. Nothing, I mean, it's like wonderful man of God, but not everybody, that, that's just not the way everybody communicates. And being that, you would be uh, um, uh, untrue to who God has created you to be. I remember when I was like 19 years old and um, there was a ministry team that came from the famous church in Bethel. Um, and, uh, and, and some of their ministry students got up to preach. And uh, it was incredible because, I mean, word for word, a Bill Johnson sermon. I mean, just word for, I mean, the mannerisms, the inflections in his voice, the pauses that he would pause, the stories that he would tell. I mean, we're, I mean it was like, it, these people, really what they should do is they should go to acting school because they can pull off a biopic. Like, they, really, I mean, it just, the movement of the hands and the, and the movement of the head, I mean, it's just all so not authentic <laughs> is what it is. And uh, it, it's one thing to have, you know, heroes of the faith and people we look up to and people we learn from. That's fine. We need that in order to help us move forward. The, the, the problem is that you don't recognize this. You, don't, you, you have to recognize this. When you choose to be like somebody else, you are depriving the body of diversity. Paul says very clearly, like, you are you. You are an ear or an eye or a heart or a kidney. Don't be like something that you're not because you are actually taking the body of Christ and you are robbing it of its richness. Years ago, when we first planted a church in um, New York, um, I was speaking with one of the young ladies who was um, one of the students that interacted with us a lot at the time and asking about planting a church in New York. And, and, um, and she was saying how all of her friends, when they graduated from school, they would go to, um, to Redeemer, which was the um, uh, fairly dominant church at the time. And, and, and I said, well, why, why did they go to Redeemer? And, um, and, and it was like, just because Tim Keller is like that good of a preacher. Like, there's not really anything else about it. It's just, um, he was just that good of a preacher that people would go and, and the Redeemer. And, um, and, uh, uh, and, and there were like other churches that like, you know, really awesome too, but, but like that's where just all of her friends went. And, um, and I said, remember after that, I'd heard of Tim Keller and I never like really focused on him. And I like listened to some of his sermons and, uh, and then I thought to myself, uh, this is, might sound prideful, but really I don't think it was. I was like, I could do this. Like it would take a lot of time and a lot of effort. 
you, because yeah, he just reads like so widely and he brings in like citations of different things. And I was like, but it's not impossible. It's not like you look at that and you're like, how would I ever do that? Like it's not, I mean, which is what happens when I look at what David Hogan does. Like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that. It was like, I mean, you and I generally know what he, where he's going, how he structures his sermon. Like it wasn't, it, it's not like you could do this, but then like, and, and, and it's, I mean, th- 5,000 people, you know, would show up every Sunday to listen to him preach. But then I, there's a realization, and you have to be really intentional about this. That's not how God has created me to be. That's not how God has created me to be. But the most natural thing in the world is, just, is to look at something that works really, really well, and then believe, I have to copy that if I want to be successful. Do you know? When ministries compete with one another, that happens so naturally, you know, First Baptist Church of blah, 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 plans a barbecue, and they have, you know, some new peach iced tea that everybody loves, and everybody shows up at the barbecue to drink the iced tea. You know, Second Baptist Church looks at First Baptist Church, you know, peach iced tea, and they're like, we got to serve peach iced tea at our barbecue this year, because everybody loves it. It's, it's the wrong mentality, you know? Like, it, like, maybe God has asked you to serve raspberry iced tea. Like, it's just, it's, it's not the right mentality, except that it's the most natural thing in the world to see other people excelling, to see other people doing well, and then think, I have to be like that in order to excel. And it totally violates the nature of unity in the body. The nature of unity. Now, there are certain things where we should be alike. Like, if everybody had a hydro flask, wonderful. Wonderful. That is our official water bottle. They do not sponsor us, but it's our official water bottle. There's some rebels with Takayas or whatever it is that you know, people have these days, and, and more fancy ones. Talk to Jenny about that after service. But I'm just joking. But, but, but it, it actually is really important. You actually have to make a conscious choice. I will be me, and I will not be. Even though Bob is being favored right now, even though Alice's gifts are being recognized right now, even though... Um, Charlie's, like, I mean, it's just cookies, are, you know, are being celebrated every week. Like, y- you have to make a conscious choice to not be that way. I told you years ago, one of the, uh, the um, uh, uh, magazines in New York, they sent a writer to Hillsong to figure out what the Hillsong sensation was. And the first thing the guy noticed was that everybody at Hillsong wore the same hat, this bowler hat. This is probably like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I don't remember when it was. Um, close when they first started. And, and he was like, what, what, what is with this hat? Like, like, you know, he follows fashion. It was like, this is not in. Like, you know, what is with this hat? And then the preacher came on stage and wore this hat. And he recognized that everybody wanted to be like the preacher. Wanted to dress like him. I mean, down to the hat. Like, the hat. Like, people. There were hundreds of people wearing this hat. And everybody wanted to be like the preacher. And that, it, like, if you have that, if you have that, you'll never have a body. You'll never function correctly as the Church of Christ if you have that. You cannot look at somebody else's very fashionable hat that they wear so well and say, I gotta wear that. I gotta go out and find that and wear that. It, it, that very mentality um, will, will destroy the richness of the diversity that is all around us. There are certain times where we need to conform for a certain reason. But you know, otherwise, some of us wear suits to church, no, it's wear suits. Some of us wear t-shirts, and some of us don't. Like, it, it just, like, it, it's okay for us to experience a little bit of, yes. <laughs> what Faith said. 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the feet to the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. 
On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which of our more presentable parts, um, which are more presentable parts do not require? Okay, it, it's, it, is, um, it is a fact that in most complex systems, the most important parts are the ones that you do not see. Imagine a car. You do not see any of the things that are actually important to the car. Let's say that you had a car and you said, yeah, I don't really, I mean, who needs a radiator? I can't even, like, nobody sees that. You know, who needs wiper fluid? I don't see that. Just give me the shell. Would that make any, like, did that car run? That car would not run. Would that car be useful? That car would not be useful. Does that make any sense? And, and so Paul is now dealing with this. He's dealing with the fact that, okay, so there are different attributes, right? Some are honorable, some are dishonorable. Some are, 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 are more modest, some are less modest. And you cannot say to yourself, I am the one that is seen, therefore I am the one that is most important. That's nonsense. And you cannot say to yourself, I am the one that is rich, and therefore I don't need anybody else. That's also nonsense. You cannot say, I'm the one that is, you know, whatever, has the greatest leadership responsibility, I don't need anyone else. It's just that, those, those are all things that are nonsense. Like what... God actually requires is that we meditate on the honorability and the necessity of what men would typically consider to be less honorable. In other words, it is incumbent upon those of us that have greater responsibility for leadership, greater visibility, greater gifting, greater whatever, to think intentionally about how important people that don't have those things are. It's very important that you do that. It's very important, for instance, that you look at the newest member in your church and think about what wonderful gifts they bring to the body and how we could not be a body without them. And not just say, like, well, we don't really need them. If they were to leave, it doesn't really matter. Nobody would remember them. It's, it's not the right attitude. You can't have that mentality. You can't have that mentality about yourself. You can't have that mentality about others. Do you know? We do, like, are, we are blessed by... Um, it's, it's this tension, you know, on the one hand, we don't need anybody other than God. On the other hand, it's like everybody brings something that is just like, if they were to not bring it, you would feel genuine loss. Like, it's just like, oh, that's actually really, really, really missing. And it doesn't matter who it is. You, you have to be able to find um, that about, about everyone. I've noticed one thing about, like, leaders that I really value is that, um, number one, they don't consider themselves the most important in the ministry. God is, but, but, but what is more important than that is that they manage to find ways to honor people that nobody else sees. I'll just give you an example, but Brother Dave is almost my example for like these things, because for some reason he manages to do a gazillion things well that like other people just don't th- seem to think about. Uh, so there's a woman in his ministry, and he says that she's the most anointed woman, that, that the most anointed person that he knows. Um, and she's a little old lady. Many of you have met her. She's a little old lady in a random village. I can't tell you the name of the village I, I, like, that nobody's ever heard of or known. But she, according to Brother David, she operates in every gift of the Holy Spirit. According to Brother David, she always uh, experiences the presence of the Holy Spirit before an outpouring that you know, touches the rest of the ministry, which he does not. And this is very difficult because... He's raised like 38 people from the dead. Count thousands of miracles, hundreds of churches, thousands of believers. Like, I mean, it's just, and she's just a little old lady who stirs rice and beans in the back of her hut. 
Nobody knows her name. Nobody knows who she, you know, she's the wife of an, of an elder. She's not an elder. She's the wife of an elder and, and, and you know, not at a particular large church. And, and like, there's nothing, sp- but then he insists, 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 you know, that when God wants to do something at Freedom Ministries, that God will first go to her. Now, first of all, I believe that he's telling the truth. Okay, so there's no problem with that. But the, it's not the fact that he's telling the truth. It's the fact that he is so very conscious of the contributions that someone that other people don't really notice makes. And because he's very conscious of her contributions and is always like lifting her up and talking about her, so do other people. And, and you notice this with, with others too, with, with, you know, they have nine or 10 di- directors, which are just the elders of their work, and, and, and they're always just lifting up, this guy, he works a lot of miracles, that guy used to be an assassin, this guy is a great businessman, you know, this guy is a wonderful preacher, that guy will hike the mountains like he's a 40-year-old, even though he's 85, like, like he's always, they find some way to lift up everybody, like everybody that's in leadership that's less visible, they find some way to lift them up, and it's incredible. It's like every church you go to, they have something like wonderful to say about that church. And it's not at all like, oh, you know, we are the missionaries. And, you know, these are the, the you know, poor savages, you know, that we preach the gospel. It's just not at all like that. And there's so many, I mean, they love how industrious people are, how working, how hospitable, how like, yeah, you know, like it's, it's, it, and Sometimes I think, well, this must be a, a, a misrepresentation. I mean, this is, you know, it feels like you're like overvaluing, but that's exactly what you're supposed to do. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. It's not that if God were to look at the work, God would say like, it, you know, that you're, you know, that Brother David is not the most important. It's not, that's not the point. The point is that you have, that it fosters unity when you're able to disproportionately value others. And, that's really hard, actually, for us, because it's easy to value people that are like you. It's hard to value people that do not look like you. There's all sorts of strife, all sorts of tension in that regard. But it is incumbent upon us to look at the church down the street, uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle, which operates fairly differently than we do, and have meaningful, insightful reasons to honor who they are. It's important for us to look at Times Square Church which is very different from you know, who we are, uh, much bigger, much, well, much more influential, much more like everything else, and have meaningful things to say about why they are a very important part of the body. It's also important to do that for you know, St. Anthony's Episcopalian Church, which is you know, like three blocks down, which on Sunday afternoons, at the right time if you go, they're always playing gospel music in the middle of the street, and it's wonderful. Sometimes I have to walk by there, and it was like, like, I mean, it's, I mean, there's a bunch of guys, you know, it's, it's Harlem. You know, there's a bunch of Harlem guys, and they just got a jukebox, you know, playing gospel music right outside the church in the middle of the street, you know, welcoming the neighbors, talking to everybody that walks by. Like, it's important to be able to not be like, well, you're not like us, you know, you don't know any missions work. It's not like, it, it, it's not, it, no. Actually, it's important that you be able to intentionally honor and value the ones that are not. Notice, the ones that are not big, the ones that are not, and not desire to be like the ones that everybody else thinks is honorable. Keep going? Okay, just Esther. On the contrary, 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And all those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. To bring all this together, what you saw in Matthew chapter 20, what you saw in 1 Samuel chapter 30, the sharing of the same reward, the same treatment, despite dis, um, seemingly disequal contributions, is an important part of what brings the body of God together. And in order to do that, you have to not look for recognition or significance or title or place within the body. You need to look for the success of the body that brings you honor for being a part of it. You can choose to fight within your body so that you get the better seat at the table at the banquet, or you can choose to recognize that this all is part of something that God is doing, and his glory, his success, is what brings glory to me. It's the same thing that brings glory to Rick Warren and Mike Bickle and like everybody. Like we, like we are all glorified by Jesus being glorified. And so rather than saying, well, you know, Mike, I mean, they're sure they have a prayer. But like, I mean, instead of like thinking of that way, it's like a total wrong way to think. Total wrong way to think. Oh, they're not charismatic. Oh, we're not charismatic either, actually. <laughs> like, um, but like, the, does that make any sense? The Baptist is something to offer. And so do the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Methodists. And, and like we all have our own problems too. But, like, but we have to really be able to esteem and to value what, what other people have to value. And when people are wrong, we have to be honest about that. But, like, but we can't just always be you know, uh, um, so happy that we believe that we are better than others. Like that's not a way to function. Do you know? Not a way to function. All right. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This type of unity is really, really, really important if the church is going to go into any sort of spiritual warfare, which it probably will go into in your lifetime. Oh, wait, our lifetime, because we're roughly the same age. Glory to Jesus. Not all of us. <laughs> but um, <laughs> roughly the same age. In China 50 years ago, the reason that many of the men and women had courage to go to jail was because they knew that their families would be taken care of by their church. There's a story of a woman who became a very famous evangelist in her, in her prison. She was sent to a, a, a woman's prison deep in the mountains with 6,000 violent inmates, murderers, rapists, drug, like uh, women. It was a women's prison, but filled with the most violent criminals in China. They gathered them all to this prison, which was really a concentration camp. And she was sent there. And after, I can't remember how long she was there for, I think 10 or 15 years, she was in there. When she left, just about every single person in that prison became a Christian by the time she left. It was just an incredible story, uh, unbearable suffering that is very difficult to describe, a very long story, I could tell you some other time, but it was just incredible. And those people were eventually let out, and because they were all criminals, they had nothing to live for in life. When they were left out, they had nothing to do other than to become evangelists. They're now believers. And so they always went all throughout China and like spreading the gospel, planting churches. Go back to their hometowns and plant churches where there were none. And this is one of the main tools that God used to spread the gospel in China. Is that, is that he would allow his people to be sent to prison unjustly. In prison, they would reach the criminals. The criminals had nothing else to live for. And so when the criminals got out, they became evangelists. It's not the strategy that we would come up with for church growth, but it was a wonderful strategy. Okay, but here's the kicker for like this morning. This woman, when she was sent to prison, had two children, an eight-year-old son and a six-year-old daughter. I think roughly their ages. The eight-year-old son 
was taken by, because at that time, the Chinese, the communists valued sons more than uh, daughters. The eight-year-old son was taken by the communists when his mother was into prison and taken to a communist youth camp and was raised in a communist camp. And that by the time that his mother got out of camp, he was a raging atheist who hated his mother and hated Jesus and everything to do with God. The daughter was taken in by members of the church. And when the mother got out, she loved God. She was a grown woman at this point. But she loved God. She loved her mom. She loved the gospel. She loved the witness. And her heart was with her mom, even though she hadn't seen her mom in, for her entire childhood, essentially. Um, and that was the sacrifice that these people made in order to go to prison. But in the sacrifice, you can't, you can't make it easier. But, but it does become a little bit more bearable when you realize that your church cares that you're now in prison for the sake of the gospel. When another family says, I'm going to adopt you into my family as my own because your parents have given their lives for the gospel. Like, that makes the work that these people have to do in prison more bearable. The knowledge that their brothers and sisters are raising their children, that their children are not starving in the streets. It makes it more bearable when there was a man that, that um, was sentenced and he had a, his, his mom was, was very old and she was disabled and it, it just makes it more bearable to know that someone is going to take your mom and bring them, her into their own house and treat, them, treat her like their own mother while you go to prison for the sake of the gospel. Do you, does that make any sense? And if you don't, if the church does not grow that kind of unity, that kind of togetherness, we're not going to survive persecution. You will not, we will not survive any form of warfare when we're all in our own corner and be like, what's best for me? Like, that's not, it doesn't work at all. It, um, in the old days, in the first century, you know this, um, when they took, they, they, they did communion differently, and when they took communion at church, they would, when people were sick or in jail, and they took communion, they broke the bread and, and had the, the, the wine, if somebody was in jail, they would go to jail and they would bring that, that brother or sister who was in jail a piece of that bread and a piece and, 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 um, and a part of that cup so they could share and commune with them from jail. In most places uh, in human history, if you were in jail, unless somebody brings you food, unless somebody brings you clothing, you just starve and die. And you needed a body. You needed to be a part of something that was going to sustain you if you were going to be faithful to God through all the different trials in life. And if you expect that kind of unity with people, you could not have spent the last 10 years degrading them and lifting yourself up in their sight, telling everybody what a great evangelist you are and how important you are and telling them, ha, ah, you guys just stay at home and cook. Like, I'm, like, you can't behave that way if you expect to be unified with them. Does that sort of make any sense? Like, you can't be, you know, the Baptist church talking down about the Lutheran church or the Lutheran church talking down about the Baptist church in a town. Like, you can't be, that, you, that, can't, you, that doesn't work. Like, it, like, the church will not survive that way if we behave like this. Do you, there's going to be a day that comes where, like, the best cooks in church will matter because, you know, the, the radical evangelists are all in prison and somebody's got to bring them soup. Like, it, it just, there, in, there is, God has a way of making everybody's gift relevant, uh, it's just that you're not going to benefit from it if you've spent, you know, the last number of years talking about how awesome you are and how, you know, not awesome other people are, do you know? 
It, it will also not work if you think that you're, you don't belong because you're insecure, you don't like your role, you don't like your gifts, you don't like you know, the shape of your foot, like whatever. Like, it just, you, can't, you can't dwell on these things. God has made you awesome the way that you are. God has made other people awesome the way that they are. Do we need to change? 100%. Do we need to grow? 100%. Do we need to be sanctified? 100%. We and everybody else, it's all the same. But it doesn't change the fact, as Paul says, that we are still members of the same body. Everybody that places their faith in Jesus Christ. There are people that don't place it, of course not. But everybody that places their faith in Jesus Christ, we're all part of the same, and it's important that we recognize that, right? Last thing. Matthew chapter 10, and then I'm going to stop here. Oh, going on for a while. Matthew chapter 10. Famous verses, you know them. Jesus says this, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person receives a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will by no means lose his reward. This paradigm of honor is so different from what the church today believes. The church today believes that if somebody walks into your church, you cannot give them a cup of cold water until they go through your statement of faith and attest to every single statement, until you check their doctrine, make sure they don't believe in controversy. Like, it's, it's insanity, the level of doctrinal purity we expect of people before we accept them as, as Christians. Jesus says, Jesus says this, whoever... <laughs> And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There's no, like, you don't need to go through a litmus test. You can just be kind. But we expect people to affirm 500 things that we believe before we accept them as a believer. And you're not allowed to read, you know, a book that somebody wrote, you know, if they believed in one, you know, slightly off thing that they don't even talk about in the book. It's insanity. And it absolutely deprives you from the reward and the participation in the reward of a people who are not like you. I love that Jesus uses the prophet as an example because most prophets are weird. People that call themselves prophets, but they look normal, they talk normal, I'm a little bit concerned about whether they're actually prophets. The, I mean, the really sensational prophets, you know, I mean, Bob Jones is kind of the quintessential one. He's got, you know, pants, you know, this leg is rolled up, you know, to his hair, and the other leg, it's like rolled down there, and he's got shoes that are different sizes, different colors, socks that are like, and you, like, I just, I mean, that, you look at him, and the, the, that's a prophet. You know, you're so in the spirit, you don't really care about how you look. <laughs> you know, hygiene is not a prophet's friend. <laughs> so... The prophets are like all together in the suit and the thing, the hair. Like I'm just like I'm not really sure if you're a prophet. I, the prophets of old were just in the presence of God, and um, you know they were weird. <laughs> slept on their side this way, slept on the side that way. You know, roasted over over cow poop. Like it's just, it's weird. It's weird. You know, prophets are weird people, and for that reason, Jesus, if you receive a prophet as a prophet, you get a prophet's reward. Like, you, you cannot be applying litmus tests to people. You need to have enough discernment to know who is real and who is not. And just like accept people for who they are. Accept them for who they are. Does that make any sense? First John 3, which we're not going to read today, but you should read it. Um, not First John, sorry, Third John, not First John 3. Third John is about hospitality. But what it really is about is about accepting people who come to you from the outside and being willing to embrace them for who they are. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, an epistle 
about being willing to receive people that are different from yourself, that come from outside, and being able to receive something of God from them and being able to send them out with honor. Um, I want to really do this well. Over the years, we've invited, as you know, lots of guests to come in to speak and to share and to testify. And a lot of them, when they come for the very first time or even second time or third time, they feel so, you, you can see this just everywhere you go, guest speakers, they're so uncomfortable. Not because we don't make them comfortable, but because they don't want to offend anyone. And the church today is so easily offended that as a guest speaker somewhere, you have to be so guarded as to like what you say, what jokes you make, what things you imply. What, like, it's just so guarded because you could offend someone, I mean, just like that. And then, you know, no honorarium and never invite back. And I, I mean, the people that we support monthly, I feel really bad for because they probably consider they might lose their monthly support if they, you know, tell a one-off joke. And um, sometimes people share it afterwards, like, is that okay, Brother Daniel? Is that, yeah, of course it was okay. Like, he was just like, what are you, like, but, but it's, it's, but they're, People are conditioned to be that way because of the status of the church today. If you, like, if you, you know, read out of the NIV instead of the ESV or the, well, the NLT is, you know, this is a concern. Just kidding. But, but, but it, it's just, no, seriously, it, it's, like, it's like every little thing. It's just like, well, I don't want any relationship with you anymore. It, so dysfunctional. So dysfunctional. And with everything that we can, you know, do, I, I want to... Try to uh, make a contribution here, even though we're such a really, really, really small church. So a few times a year, as you know, we intentionally cancel service so that you can visit other churches and find out how awesome they are. And there's the big ones in New York, Brooklyn Tab and Times Square and, you know, the, 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 the big ones and Redeemer, obviously, like the, the, the big ones. And there's smaller ones. There's your, your neighborhood Baptist church. You know, there's your neighborhood Episcopalian church. There's your neighborhood. And um, yeah, they may be a little bit different from you. They may allow uh, gay ministers in the pulpit. They may, uh, uh, you have to draw a line somewhere. I, I understand that. But, but, but teach yourself how to really celebrate and give honor to the differences, people that are not like you. Never think of yourself or this church as being like, oh, and then other people are like, oh. <laughs> no. Really learn to lift them up. Do you know? The reward for that is that everybody else's reward you also receive. Receive a prophet as a prophet, you get his reward. The reward for being willing to honor people that are different is that you also get their reward. There's no faster way to accumulate a treasure hoard in heaven than to simply appreciate other people. I mean, having to go out and do the hard work by yourself, geez, save me from that. Back, like backbreaking labor and all. Oh, like, if I could just honor you and get your reward, oh, the fastest way to accumulate a treasure hoard in heaven is to learn how to be a part of a diverse body that you appreciate. All right, I'm going to stand up. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've called us to. And I pray, Lord, this morning, I, I know, God, that this is not, uh, it's probably not very controversial, but that doesn't mean that we do it well. And I pray, Lord, that where there is agreement, 
that you would just thank you for the agreement. But I I pray for a, a genuine expression of this in our hearts. Not just that we would know it in our heads. Not just that we would know in our heads these truths. But that we would really live it out in our hearts. Help this church never to exalt itself above others. And then not a single one of our members would take pride because of where they go to church or the things that we believe or the things that we practice or the ways that we live or the standards that we set for people. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to humble ourselves, to acknowledge the beauty of what you have created for others to do, shape them to be. that you would help us, God, even though we've faced more than our fair share of rejection, that you would help us, God, to be bridge builders, that you would help us, God, to outdo others in honoring those who are unlike us, that you would help us, God, to be a part of a generation that sees your church united together not just the Charismatics together, not just the Baptists together, not just the Presbyterians together, or that you would see your church together, every single person faithful to the name of Jesus Christ. Please, God, we pray, Lord, that before you return, you would find a church on this earth that is done well in representing you that has done well in fulfilling your prayer, John 17, that has done well in coming together as one body of which you are the head. Help us, Lord, to live and to strive towards this, first in this house, and then secondly, outside of it. In Jesus' name, amen.